Podglomerate original. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, The Carbon Copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to The Carbon Copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. As I set out to backpack through Mineral King, the road was engulfed in flames. Was a second hike in as many months about to get canceled by wildfires again? The KNP complex fire is just 11% contained and is burning across nearly 50,000 acres, including treasured groves in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park. The day before I left for Mineral King, a new fire ripped through the forest, threatening not only our safety, but the lives of many ancient giant sequoia trees. California's giant sequoias can live for thousands of years, but scientists say they've rarely seen the kind of intense fires that have swept the state in recent years. First, the roads through the park shut down, and then the park itself closed. And another fire is blazing in Sequoia National Forest to the south. The national parks are closed to visitors, but special... Was this the start of an alarming trend? I couldn't help but wonder if my new backpacking hobby would end before it really even began. As fire seasons seemed to get bigger and hotter every year, I didn't know what was in store. And, as a lover of nature, I was concerned about the impact my actions had on the outdoors. It wasn't lost on me that, as much as I try to live a conscious lifestyle, the simple act of traveling to these places has an irreversible impact on the environment. What should I do? Can I justify that backpacking has a more negligible impact than driving a car through the mountains? Or my tourism dollars, because that's what they are, being used to help the areas I'm visiting? Do I need to completely rethink how I recreate outdoors? I may not have lit a match, but am I partially responsible for starting these fires? I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way.
As I pondered the future of Mineral King, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon National Park, I thought about the agencies tasked with protecting these areas. Attracting visitors with hikes and exhibits and views is part of the way these agencies are able to fund the work they do. But isn't it easier to preserve an area that no one is in? I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I just recognize the dilemma that faces a lot of these agencies. And this is nothing new. This has been going on in one form or another since their beginnings. And you can even see how each administration differs from one to another, whether that's the Forest Service, the National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, or state and local parks. Mineral King, today, is part of Sequoia National Park. But it wasn't always that way. Long before settlers, indigenous peoples called this place home. Then, as many were forced to leave and sent to reservations, eventually a mining town gave it the name Mineral King. After that, the U.S. Forest Service managed the land, and in 1965, the Forest Service looked to the public, inviting proposals for a future Mineral King ski resort. Out of the six received proposals, the U.S. Forest Service officially chose one submitted by Walt Disney Productions. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's better. H-E-L-P dot slash W-E-I-G-H-T. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle, to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, 
The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I, th- I thought an interesting place to start out might be that you recently got a job title change. Yes. Is that correct? I did. <laughs> so I am officially the Guardian's extreme weather correspondent. This is Gabrielle Cannon. So I'm also climate reporter of the American West. So that's kind of the umbrella. But yeah, my, my focus is sort of directed now. I look at all of these really crazy extreme climate effects that we have been experiencing out here. Um, and that includes fires and droughts and floods and you name it. Uh, maybe I'm naive, but I was unfamiliar that there was an extreme weather category for reporting specifically. Is that a more recent invention of our times? It is. Yeah, I think I'm the first ever extreme weather correspondent, at least with The Guardian. I mean, I had been doing that work already. And so just under a different title. Yeah, exactly. It was just kind of climate reporter general. But is am I wrong to assume that that's a telling title of sort of where we're currently at in the world? Absolutely. Or at least in the American West. Right. And I think we're, yeah, we're at this moment now where we need sort of a focus on on just explaining what these events mean and, and how they're kind of connected to the bigger picture and the climate crisis. But also, I think really just telling the human stories connected to disasters. I mean, disaster reporting is, you know, always existed. But this particular beat, I think, is trying to bring in more of that context and just telling, um, I guess, broader, deeper stories about this moment that we're in now. The first time I maybe became aware of weather climate news, I guess for lack of a better word, was probably middle school. I could compare, oh, maybe this felt different or this seems different or this is the same or seasons become a little concrete. I don't know. Maybe that's old and maybe I was just very slow. It's it's an interesting time. I mean, I live in California. A lot of my hiking and backpacking happens in California, but now it feels like I have to totally reimagine when backpacking season is. I mean, it feels like California is just on fire all the time. Is that, am I, am I being too hyperbolic there? I feel you. I mean, the last several backpacking trips I've tried to do have all either gotten smoked out or have, I've had to cancel because of fires. We've had a really interesting summer in California. Mm-hmm. I think all of us were really bracing for, again, this repeat of this really scary, smoky, plans cancel-y <laughs> type of summer when you just feel like every place you want to go to is burning. California specifically has had a really light season. And strangely, I mean, it's kind of come down to luck. I mean, it hasn't... I, it's one of those weird things where it doesn't necessarily mean... I was going to say we're out of the woods to <laughs> use a hiking trope. What, what that means is that we've been really lucky in terms of weather and timing and people not starting fires. We've had a few really bad ones, obviously. But I, as you know, as a Californian, going into autumn is really when those risks start to peak anyway. And so there's this sort of collective 
I don't know, holding of breath of like, okay, what's going to, what's in store for the next few months? And is there still time to get outside and do some of these great trips while these risks remain, you know, and that that season is actually extending longer and longer and longer. And so I think that's impacting both the climate and, and these ecosystems and obviously the people who live there, but it's also impacting recreation and, and the towns and economies that depend on it. What is happening? Like, why why are fires seemingly getting bigger and starting earlier and burning later and longer? There are several different factors that go into it. When we look at what's happening in California landscapes, and if we, we can actually even zoom out further, just to talk more broadly about the American West, right? That's kind of where my focus is. Fires have existed on these landscapes forever, right? These landscapes are evolved with fire. And in fact, fire is actually incredibly healthy for them and essential to clear out old vegetation and, and to you know, regenerate certain trees and soils and things like that. But what has happened, of course, is with climate change, things are getting hotter. And with this spike in temperatures, we're also seeing intense drying that's happening. These things kind of compound and they build on one another. Heat dries things out. Drought increases more heat. So you've seen this sort of cyclical building of these fire conditions getting worse. And so that's kind of been happening in the background, right? We're, we're causing that with climate change. There's also been land management issues. For a very long time, people and officials decided they didn't want to have fires, right? <laughs> we wanted to stop fires immediately. And it's really natural, healthy fires were suppressed for years and years and years. What has essentially happened is these landscapes, as they're drying and becoming more fire-ready, fire-prone, they're also far more overgrown than they would have otherwise been. It was it was people's best intention that they thought fires were destroying the landscape. And so the, the sort of best thought of, at the time, or at least the loudest thought, maybe not the best thought at the time, was let's put out these fires before they destroy and burn down these forests. Is that sort of... Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I think you could say that there were, that they had good intentions. I mean, I know there are arguments to be made about resource development and the protection of logging, things like that. But I think one of the criticisms that's come up again and again is this idea that there were people here long before <laughs> white settlers came in and made these decisions and set up these institutions and businesses. And so when you look at indigenous communities and nations, their development of cultural burning, long before we even had the state of California, there were people who were setting these fires intentionally and stewarding the lands and doing so in a way that was incredibly healthy for the environment. When you look at that knowledge that has been almost entirely erased and then folks kind of came in and now we're at a point where we're circling back, you have officials saying, oh yeah, now, now we want to try prescribed burning. We want to try controlled burning and we're going to try to do a bit of a better job of listening to our indigenous leaders who actually know what they're doing and know what these landscapes need. So in some ways, yes, you could say best intentions were definitely there, but there also was this erasure of what was already known at the time to be best practices. People are living or going to these places that are more fire prone, for lack of a better term. And I know that we saw a huge boom throughout the pandemic and lockdowns of people getting outside and, and 
that obviously has its its pros, but is some of that effect causing these things? Or, I mean, what sort of thoughts do you have on that sort of concept? I guess what I'm trying to say on a bigger picture is just like, what are the pros and cons? Is it, yeah. is that one of the big things that's causing? Like, should I stop? I was just, I drove to Alaska, Amazing. you know, and for a, for a month and camped and did along the way. And yes, I was in a Prius, but, <laughs> but that still had a huge effect. And like, am I responsible for this climate change? Should I limit my camping and hiking to a smaller radius? Or is it a much bigger issue? And I'm, I can put, justify still doing stuff like that. <laughs> well, I mean, you're asking someone who is very biased in favor of getting outside. So I think the more people can experience these places, the better. It's one of those really difficult balancing acts, right? Because on the one hand, you can say, yes, having more people in, in these spaces adds new risk, both to them and to the landscape. But on the other hand, we also know that that's what cultivates appreciation and love of spaces that we are trying to protect. And so in some ways, I think it's essential to make sure that people, even those who maybe never thought about going camping, have some sort of access to these really just incredible, striking, cherished places that we love. But I mean, at the same time, what we're seeing is that it's not only having a really profound effect on the landscapes themselves, but we're also seeing a lot of safety issues come up. When you talk about fires, one of the striking statistics, 30% of fires starting on U.S. Forest Service lands, 30% were caused by campfires. Oh, wow. And and now, you know, the result of that is the Forest Service is like, a lot of the year, you just can't have campfires anymore. And obviously, when it comes to climate change, that's a low-level adaptation, right? Like nobody's gonna grieve that hard, but I'm kind of grieving, right? You love sitting around the campfire and it's such a, like the quintessential camping feeling. Some of my favorite memories of camping, just, you know, you wake up and it's that crisp, chill morning and get your coffee going, start your little fire. Like thinking about people going camping for the first time and not having a campfire, does that change camping for us? I think it's, kind of an interesting question. But on the other hand, we obviously have to be doing something to ensure that these big fires aren't erupting. And I think once you're getting this big push now, more people wanting to experience the outdoors and wanting to have these great adventures, but without really having a lot of, I don't know, training or knowledge about how to do that safely, but also respectfully to the environment, I think that's become a growing issue. The desire to get more people outside is nothing new. And it's trends like these that Disney saw as evidence for the need of a Mineral King ski resort. And while Disney could spend ample time in Mineral King, my trip to the area was on hold, while the wildfires continued to grow. As I continued to walk through my neighborhood, unsure of what to do as the news of the fire filled my notifications, I ducked into the library to get 
out of the hot sun and check my phone. I wasn't going to the library, it just happened to be where I was at the time. But since I was there, I thought, I might as well see if they have any books about Mineral King. The librarian helped me find an old teal book with an embossed Mineral King in gold and silver leaf on the cover. It was from the 70s and covered in that sticky plastic they used to protect books, though the adhesive was failing and dust had lodged itself between the cover and the plastic. Its once white pages were yellowed and wrinkled, and in the back was a fold-out map of the region. Little was said about Disney's interest in the area, but I kept the book anyway. When I returned home, I searched online archives to see what else I could learn while I waited to know the fate of my hike and the fate of the forest. Disney described his proposal as an American alpine wonderland, complete with a five-story hotel, movie theater, ice rinks, and a golf course. To finance the whole operation, Disney also planned multiple restaurants and various shows and entertainment options. On December 18, 1965, the Los Angeles Times announced the Forest Services permit with Walt Disney Productions to start development on a ski park, a resort for visitors to enjoy and experience nature, and maybe leave with a sense of magic and wonder, newly fallen in love with the outdoors. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. With the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. In the Sierra Nevada mountains, halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco, Walt Disney began designing a new type of ski resort. A year-round, family-friendly, alpine-inspired theme park. Disney was in the business of making the impossible possible, and this new resort would continue his legacy. From designing movies and theme parks to designing the world, Disney didn't stop to think about how skiing wasn't the most popular sport, or that it's a seasonal hobby unlike the year-round activities at Disneyland in sunny Southern California. No, Disney likes skiing. He saw value in it and believed he could change how we Americans saw the sport. His Mineral King ski park would be a success, and if there were to be any problems, maybe it would be that the park would become too popular, and he'd have to open a second resort elsewhere. Not unlike Disney World. His excitement was high, and he couldn't wait to share it with the world. And... With a permit from the Forest Service, seemingly only one thing stood in his way. A new road would first need to be built, allowing for safe access to this remote region of the Sequoia National Forest. Upon completion, the new highway would bring visitors to a mountain park that would reinvent ski resorts, the same way Disneyland changed the history of amusement parks. The spring 1966 issue of Disney News outlined Disney's plan for the Mineral King Basin. At an estimated 35 million, the new park was expected to bring in 1 million tourists and guests in the first year alone. In addition, Disney's American Alpine Wonderland would highlight the natural surroundings by adding a five-story hotel, ice rink, golf course, movie theater, hospital, chapel, conference center, train station, heliport, 
and all of the facilities needed to maintain and power the resort. In Disney's words, this was one of the most beautiful places he had ever seen, and he wanted to maintain Mineral King as a beautiful and natural retreat. This resort, and all the related construction, was his idea of doing just that. Back in season one, I spoke with author Dan White about concepts like Leave No Trace, among other things. And while he's an accomplished hiker, he's also written a lot about the history of camping. I, I know for me, part of the reason I love going hiking and camping is sort of being able to get away and get out in places where not very many people are or have been. And there also is sort of like a weird bragging right, for lack of a better word, of like feeling like I'm doing this. I'm getting out here in this quote-unquote wild place. And and I don't think that's something that's unique to just me. Certainly in the beginning of camping, the brag part that you mentioned was huge. And there are some aspects of that that are kind of disgusting, actually, because people would go out and make it look like they were the ones who were in peril where these wilderness guides, including quite a few Native American wilderness guides, were doing everything. One extreme example that is just frightening to think about is the hunting aspect of it because very often these guides would set up your shot so this is the late 19th century so as i mentioned the wilderness consciousness is not what it is today and people would go out there and be pretty wasteful they had this one practice where the guide would chase a deer into the lake so the deer is already a little bit kind of compromised it's tired and it's kind of trapped in the water but not only that this is the really gross part is the guide this is common enough so of the name, the guide would sneak up on the deer while it's somewhat incapacitated in that lake, and he'd grab it by the tail and say, shoot it. And the this camping slob would get out his gun and just pot this thing at close range, and then he probably would mount it. You can just imagine this guy mounting this somewhere and saying, oh, yes, it's the stag that I shot in midair while it was jumping from one cliff to another. Stuff like that, where there was, some, there was an element of passivity and just taking it easy, but kind of making it look like you were doing something. Kind of like glamping today, where it's more like the idea of strenuous living. It's more like the idea that you're in nature, but really that's pretty much a yeah. hotel living outside. There's a part of, I think it's in the Ken Burns National Park documentary series. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. It's great. There's a part of it if, if it, that always resonates with me. Um, where they talk about this sort of juxtaposition between popularizing the wilderness and making it appealing and touristy and adventuresome that has helped uh, save it. But at the same time, that same effort has helped hurt it and destroy it and gotten rid of some of the stuff you're trying to preserve. It's true. And it certainly jumped out at me when you mentioned trying to get, get away from it all. And boy, you go out there and it's still gorgeous. It's still, there's still, it's just amazing country, but you will see a lot of people. Well, yeah. And this, this just sort of echoes everything we've talked about with you leave no trace and, and the question of whether people are loving the, the parks to death and what is quote unquote appropriate and quote unquote inappropriate ways of using the outdoors. Like to many people, a ski resort is a great way to appreciate nature, but it obviously is changing the surroundings by building. Like, I, have you heard of the, I just recently started researching this whole 
Disney and Mineral King building a, a, a ski resort. Have you have you heard anything about that? I have a whole spiel about that. Yeah, that's a, that is a pretty incredible situation. That was something that they were looking at really seriously to have a resort out there. And from one account, I'd heard. Did you ever? Did you ever go to? I'm not sure how old you are, but if you remember that, you probably don't remember the Country Bear Jamboree at Disney. Oh, howdy, folks! Welcome to the one and only original Country Bear Jamboree. Did it, boys? Apparently, there was some version of that where they were in talks about wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. You, you're saying that the Country Bear Jamboree was originally for made for Mineral King? That's right. Well, bears will play now in the good old key of G. Zeke and Zem, Ted, friend of our name, Tennessee. Zeke's twanging on banjo and a tapping with his feet. A banging on a dish pine with a real old country beat. It seems like now, more than ever, a trip to Disneyland was in store. Currently at Disneyland in Anaheim, California, walking to Critter Country. I'm here too, Rocky. Rocky's here as well. Passing New Orleans Square, New Orleans Square, the Haunted Mansion, Tom Sawyer's Island is on our right. And we're heading to Critter Country to go to the site of where the Country Bear Jamboree used to be. So the Country Bear Jamboree was first designed, developed for the Mineral King Resort. Oh, right, right, right. But it was never put in there and instead brought here. Oh, now it's Winnie the Pooh. In the 2000s, they got rid of it and put in a Winnie the Pooh ride. So we're walking into Critter Country right now. Splash Mountain is just beside us. Are you going to go on Splash Mountain? No, last time we went, I got soaked because I was in the front and then you were right behind me. And so the weight just pushed it all. All is so much water in my mouth and that water is not the prettiest looking water. We can go in the canoes and you can get wet again. <laughs> Some kids splash you. Don't go in the canoes. <laughs> About to get to the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh which was once the Country Bear Jamboree. It's a five minute wait. The plans for Mineral King also included 14 ski lifts planned to be in operation year round for hikers and campers when there was no snow allowing many visitors to ascend to a height of over 10,000 feet for the first time. The entire resort was to be a self-contained village with restaurants, shops, and entertainment, an alpine version of Main Street Disneyland. Disney Imagineer Bob Gurr even designed a new high-capacity ski lift, which Disney patented and spun off as a separate new business. And yet, still more. At least 10 restaurants with different price points were planned, including a cafe built at a height of 11,090 feet in elevation. One idea for a restaurant included an audio-animatronic bear designed by Imagineer Mark Davis. But enough of this chit-chat, yak-yak, and flim-flam. Just refrain from hibernating. <laughs> and we'll all enjoy the show, because we've got a lot to give. Another Imagineer, Wathel Rogers, said, 
After the Mineral King contract had been signed, Walt had an idea for entertainment after people had been skiing. Walt said, What we are going to do is have a bear band and have them perform two or three programs of entertainment. We'll say that the bears had come out of the Sequoias and we trained them to be entertainers. To give you perspective about Disney's 1 million visitors in the first year projection, the year before his announcement, Mineral King had only seen about 24,000 people. In a marketing pamphlet, Disney is quoted as saying, When we go into a new project, we believe in it all the way. That's the way we feel about Mineral King. We have every faith that our plans will provide recreational opportunities for everyone. All of us promise that our effort, now and in the future, will be dedicated to making Mineral King grow to meet the ever-increasing public need. I guess you might say that it won't ever be finished. Disney liked the idea of constant reimagining. He said the same thing about Disneyland when it opened, that the amusement park would never be completed. But in Disney's constant desire to change, grow, and plus the park, his limited space in Anaheim, California led him across the U.S. to Florida. Welcome to Disneyland, USA. This was all a Disney dream a dozen years ago, a far-out project that was totally unproved. Today, 60 million people have come here from every state in America and from almost every nation around the world. This audio is from a promotional film by Disney in 1966, selling the idea of a future park in Orlando. And now, here is Walt Disney. Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called uh, Disney World project. Now, the purpose of this film is to bring you up to date about some of the plans for Disney World. But before I go into any of the details, I want to say just a word about the site of our Florida project. As you can see on this map, we have a perfect location in Florida, almost in the very center of the state. In fact, we selected this site because it's so easy for tourists and Florida residents to get here by automobile. The concept of an ever-changing, always-growing theme park is one of the things that set Disneyland apart from the competition. And it's a concept that blended into the perceived idea of ever-changing nature. However, it's hard to think about this today without wondering what a continual reimagining and rebuilding would do to the quote-unquote pristine alpine wilderness Disney was known to praise. Everything in this room may change time and time again as we move ahead. But the basic philosophy of what we're planning for Disney World is going to remain very much as it is right now. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. It's an exciting challenge. A once in a lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. Remember, according to Disney, his goal was to preserve Mineral King's natural beauty. This resort was his answer. Disney had been to the car-free city of Zermatt, Switzerland, with its pristine, pollution-free views of the Alps. So too would be true of Disney's Mineral King. No cars would be allowed in the Mineral King Basin. Instead, 
all visitors would park out of sight in an oversized underground garage and be shuttled to the resort by one of Walt's favorite forms of transportation. Train or monorail. Designers even drew up plans to camouflage the ski lifts and hide the resort buildings from arriving guests' sight lines. And an additional 60,000 square foot administration and service complex would be built underground, beneath the hotel's shops and restaurants, hidden from the guests' view and allowing support to travel by tunnels to various park attractions. Before Walt Disney Productions received its permit, Mineral King had only 33 small campsites spread throughout the area, and the vast majority of tourists were limited to primarily summer-only hikers. And some of these hikers were horrified by the amount of machinery, buildings, and general disruption of nature Disney would need to see his park built. Some outdoor activists also pointed out that in 1926, Congress had designated Mineral King as a national game refuge, meaning it was protected land. Not only that, but the area was also bordered on three sides by a national park, which limited the legal activities allowed. Plus, plans had long been discussed to incorporate Mineral King into Sequoia National Park, protecting the area with an even more strict set of rules and regulations. However, the dissenting voices weren't loud enough, and the Forest Service was for Disney's ski park. Even the Sierra Club supported Disney's Mineral King Resort. With state approval, public support, and nature organizations backing the project, not to mention the new jobs the construction and resort would bring, Disney had everything in place to build the ski park he'd imagined for so long. It was all but an inevitability. There was only one thing left standing in his way. The Disney team needed to figure out how to rebuild the one small winding road to Mineral King. As it currently stood, there was no way it would be safe enough to accommodate one million people. Not to mention almost all of the few visitors Mineral King currently had wound up carsick because of the hairpin twists and turns. Special thanks to Gabrielle Cannon. You can read her work for The Guardian and find more information at gabriellecannon.com. And thanks again to Dan White. Both Dan and Gabrielle were also on season two of Trail Wait. To read any of Dan White's books or to learn more about him, check out danwhitebooks.com. For more information, visit us online at trailwait.co. Or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at trailwait. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a review, rating the podcast, and sharing an episode with someone who might find it interesting. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate.
conglomerate original.